All right, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalm, Psalm 132. And we're going to read a couple of verses there, and I have several passages of Scripture. Don't feel that you've got to go through all of those passages of Scripture with me, but I'm trying to make a point today that's going to be extremely valuable for all of us this coming year. And uh, this daily Bible reading passage is a good way to illustrate that. And so I want to take advantage of that. And so in Psalm 132, you'll read these words, Lord, remember David. Doesn't tell us who's saying this, but these are certainly worshipers who are praying for David. Now, whether David's alive at this point or not, we do not know. Because if you listen to the rest of the prayer, you'll get a distinct, very important concern that the children of Israel have. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions and how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And then the vow is given. And after the vow is given, there's a little bit of a reminiscing. There's a little bit of plan of action here that the worshipers have. And then they come back in verse 10 with the second part of their prayer. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of of your anointed. Now, your anointed would refer to David, Solomon, his kids, and the whole line of kings leading up to the ultimate anointed one, who would be who? Jesus. Now, you're probably sitting there and you're saying, oh, wow, I, I wanted to really hear something rousing today. Well, let me get started. Let me get started. Let me tell you what I want this year. I want the truth. I want to hear the truth. I want to know the truth. I want to share the truth. I'm tired of half-baked truths. I'm tired of half-truths and half-lies. I'm tired of misrepresentations of the truth. I want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what I want this year, because I have spent almost a year listening to lies and half-truths, and misleading arguments and opinions. And I really want the truth. Someone once said that when you talk about it from a personal perspective, that um, the things that go in one ear and out the other don't hurt as much as the things that go in one ear get all mixed up and then slip out of the mouth. 
You ever heard that one? <laughs> Tell you what. But here's the thing that I want to share with you. Because in the daily Bible reading, I always ask myself the question, because I want to get something out of the daily Bible reading. I don't, I don't want to read it just to read it, and I, don't want it to, I just don't want to read uh, God's Word just to know what's in it. I always ask myself the question, is there anything in this passage of Scripture that's going to change my life? Is there anything in this passage of Scripture that's going to make a difference for me and for the world in which I live? I'm always asking that question. And as I studied this passage of Scripture, which is in the daily Bible reading for this past week you went over this, I thought of it and thought of it and thought of it, and I said, this is a great example of why this daily Bible reading program is so important to us. We will not get the truth if we depend upon others to give it to us. I can categorically tell you that. We will not get the truth if we depend upon the media to give it to us. Because others, the media, and anybody else who has a stake in sharing information with us will feed us only what they want us to know. Isn't that true? That's all you're going to get. We have to do a whole lot better than that. I, you know, I hope, like an idiot. I opened up the paper yesterday, and this is the third. Yesterday was the second. It's a brand new year. And like an idiot, I thought that everybody was going to, everybody's going to have New Year's resolutions, and I just assumed that everybody was going to tell the truth this year. I don't know what I was thinking. I opened up the paper, and I turned to an article by the Associated Press, and I began to read the article, and Dawn was sitting there, and I said to Dawn, I said, this is a lie. <laughs> it is misleading at best. It is not telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I remember the days when I was younger, when the Associated Press was one of the most uh, reputable news organizations in the world. And you could depend upon them. And I went through the paper, uh, and I went with article after article and after article, and I thought, I'll tell you what, we live in a world where we are not getting the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And being led, misled in things that uh, you and I deal with every day is one thing, but let me extend it to religion. That's worse. To be misled when it comes to religious matters has eternal consequences. All you have to do is ask Eve. All you have to do is ask Adam. And they could tell you the horrible, disastrous, devastating consequence when Satan confronted them with just a little bit of the truth and then twisted it and withheld the rest of it. And we are in a predicament today because of that. So let me suggest this to you, that God's Word is the best foundation I can think of anywhere for giving us 
the truth. And everything that we do in life and everything that we believe and everything that we pursue, we need to make sure it lines up with the truth of God's Word. Whatever God's Word says, we know it's true. If it speaks about science, it's not a science book, but when it speaks about science, it's true. When it speaks about history, it's true. When it speaks about being right with God, it's true. The Bible ought to be the book that, and, and you know what, there are just hundreds of guidelines in Scripture to help us to figure out what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is not true. We, you know, the classic example of uh, dealing with deceit, and you're all familiar with this because we've heard it many, many times, it's classic. It is the locus classicus on fleshing out the deceitful heart of man. And um, it's this story about four boys who cut class one morning in a Chicago suburb, and they didn't get to class until noon. You know what I'm going to say, right? And their explanation was that they had a flat tire, and the teacher said, okay, that's okay, boys. You did miss a test, but you can make it up right now on your lunchtime. And so she seated them in four corners of the room, one in one corner, one in the other corner, and the two other corners. And she said to them, gave them a sheet, gave them one question, and the question was, guys, which tire was flat? <laughs> yeah, you've all heard that, haven't you? Now, she was interested in getting to the truth. And she wasn't going to depend upon them to tell her. And we need to be interested in getting to the truth, and not just the truth, but the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And we all need to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Uh, Paul had been to the city of Thessalonica. He goes down to the city of Berea, and he's sharing the gospel. He goes into the city of Berea, and he goes into the synagogue, and he begins sharing the gospel in that city. And the Bible tells us that the, that the people in Berea were a little bit more noble. They were a little bit more fair-minded than the city in Thessalonica. When the Apostle Paul talks about that experience and he describes the people at Berea, or Luke describes the people at Berea, here's how he describes them. He said, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and they searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They were having nothing to do with Paul coming in and telling them something and then them just saying, okay, I'm just going to believe it. They wanted none of that. They wanted to make sure that they could examine what the Apostle Paul said. They, had, they were fair-minded. They weren't biased and prejudiced. They received the Word. They were open, teachable. And in order to make sure that the Apostle Paul was saying the right things, they were searching the Scriptures daily. And I can imagine this. I can imagine this opening the Old Testament scrolls, and every time Paul would say something, they would say, Paul, we're going to check you out. We're going to make sure that what you're telling us is true. We're going to make sure that we can confirm it with what the Word of God teaches. And so we need to do that. Now, when you and I... 
Uh, if we want to keep from being misled and we want to know the truth and the whole truth, one of the very first things we need to do is make sure that when we are told something, that we can bring as much information to the table as we possibly can so we can get rid of the bad stuff and keep the good. So that we can confirm the truth or we can expose the error. We need to do that. It's very important that we do that. Now, look at Psalm 132 in the remaining time that we have here, all right? There's 18 verses here, and when I read this psalm to you, uh, when I read this a little bit earlier, I anticipated you sitting there and saying, oh, you know what, typical, typical passage of Scripture, I don't know if I can get excited about this. I don't know if I understand it. I don't know. But if you read Psalm 132, and it's your first reading, and you have no background whatsoever, and you can't take the rest of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, or Genesis up to the period of time that this was written, and you can't pull all of that information into this passage of Scripture, you are vulnerable for misunderstanding it. You're a good candidate for anybody coming to you and saying to you, let me tell you what it means. Let me give you an illustration of that, all right? For instance, in verse 6, when it comes to historical, just pure historical information, when the psalmist says, behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of the woods, so let's go to his tabernacle, what on earth is he talking about from a historical perspective? Just common, everyday information. I could mislead you and suggest several things to you, and you would be no better for it. When you go to verse 12, for instance, where the Bible says in verses 11 and 12, the Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I shall teach them and their sons shall also sit upon your throne forever. And there's a big if there in verse 12. And I could come to you if you can't take Scripture from Genesis all the way up to this passage of Scripture and either further and you can't pull that information into the Scripture, I could mislead you with this passage of Scripture in a very devastating way. You could say, well, pastor, how could you mislead me? Well, I could say to you, you know the world in which we live today? There's a nation over there called Israel sitting over there and doesn't belong to be there. It's not supposed to be there. It's not supposed to be there because his sons, David's sons, didn't keep my covenant and God destroyed Israel. So why on earth the world is recognizing the country of Israel, I don't, I don't understand that. I could mislead you with that. See? I could look at verse 13 where the Bible says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And if I can't pull in information from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament to help us to understand what that word Zion means, I could say to you this morning, well, Zion has nothing to do with a place or a location. 
It certainly has nothing to do with Jerusalem, which in the Old Testament was another word for Zion, and Zion another word for Jerusalem. Therefore, every time I see the word Zion in the Bible, I don't take it literally, I try to spiritualize it. Now, there's room for spiritualizing passages of Scripture, but there are times when we shouldn't do it. But I could mislead you. I, there's three examples there where I could mislead you from this passage of Scripture. I can mislead you with the tr because you don't have the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And you could walk out of here and you could say, wow, I didn't know that all meant that. Now, I'm going to try to change this for you a little bit so you can see why the daily Bible reading is so important. We're giving you an opportunity to go through the Bible in a year or two. We're giving you an opportunity to read it through so that you can associate everything you're reading with what you've already read. And even though you haven't read these passages of Scripture yet in our daily Bible reading, you're going to read them. And when you do read them, it's going to build a frame of reference for you. And chances are it's going to happen without you knowing it. And then when you read Psalms like this, you'll be able to understand them a little bit better. <coughs> Let me just simply say this to you. A pastor doesn't spend just a few minutes putting together a sermon. Because a pastor is taught that he has no right to stand in the pulpit and talk about any one single passage of Scripture unless he understands what the rest of God's Word says about that topic. Do you realize how many, how many passages of Scripture I had to go through when I wanted to restudy Zion for this message? <laughs> you realize the hours sometimes it takes to do that because I don't want to get into the pulpit and I don't want to say anything that would mislead you. That doesn't mean it's foolproof. doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. We all do. But we are more likely to make mistakes when we cannot see the rest of Scripture interpreting any given passage that we're dealing with. And so I want to do this with you, and I, I want to, and if you have your Bible, I strongly suggest that you do this. This will not take long because I've had to condense all of these passages of Scripture into a very short period of time. But if you have your Bibles, go, take with, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. I'm merely going to give you, I, I, I want you to, what I want to happen here is I want you to say, okay, he's giving us bits and pieces of information, certainly not giving us the total accounts, he's just giving us the highlights of, of, of some things in Scripture. And the interesting thing about it is that when I get to Psalm 132, what I could not understand in my first reading because I was vulnerable, and I mean vulnerable, vulnerable to theologians, vulnerable to skeptics, vulnerable to critics. It's kind of like the walls of Jericho and the Sunday school teacher, and I try to do this illustration every once in a while. And uh, when nobody laughs at all, I'll know that it's too, it's been used too much. But the Sunday school teacher decided to 
He was in his class, and the pastor came into the class and said, could I ask your class of boys a question? And the Sunday school teacher said, yes, you can. You're all familiar with this? And the Sunday school teacher said, yes, you can. And so he said to the class, he said, boys, I want to know who, told, who tore down the walls of Jericho. And no, nobody said anything. Those boys just sat there until finally, after about a minute and no answer, a little boy in the back of the room raised his hand and said, I didn't do it. And the pastor looked at the Sunday school teacher and said, we need to talk. And so he took the Sunday school teacher out of the classroom and said, what is it? What's with this? And I'm getting this kind of a response. And the Sunday school says, I don't know. I know this boy really, really well. I know the family he comes from. I know his relatives. And, and if he said he didn't do it, he didn't do it. And the pastor said, oh, okay. So he went to the deacons of the church and had a little board meeting with them. And he said to the deacons of the church, he said, hey, I asked this question in class. This is the response I got from the boy. This is the response I got from the, from the Sunday school teacher. What do you think I need to do? And the deacons looked at it, and they talked about it, and they said, well, pastor, we've come to this conclusion that um, we know the Sunday school teacher, and we know he is a man of integrity, and we know this little boy, and he's okay. And, and if uh, they say he didn't do it, he didn't do it but we'll pay for it. Now, that probably didn't happen, but it illustrates a very important point to us as far as God's Word is concerned. Wouldn't you love to this year be able to pinpoint, wouldn't you love to be able to say, man, I, I, I'm getting the truth, and I'm getting you the truth because I'm comparing it with what the Scriptures teach, and I know that what I'm hearing is not right. Or wouldn't you be really love to say, you know what? It's lining up with God's Word, and I know that what I am hearing is definitely the truth. Wouldn't you love that to happen? And the neat thing about it is, God in His Word tells us how, you know, He talks about, I mean, God's human nature is something that God is an expert at, right? So He knows how we are to examine human nature to know also what is right and what is wrong, what is true, and what is false. But you're in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, I'm just going to get you bits and pieces of information, and we'll get back to Psalm 132 as quick as we can. Now, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Philistines, good people or bad people? They're the enemies of Israel. They don't know God. They don't love God. And when they went out, guess who was defeated in the battle in chapter 4 of Samuel? The Bible says at the end of verse 2 that when they joined in battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines. So Israel lost the battle. And the people are really confused by that. They don't understand how if God is on their side, how can they lose the battle? And in verse 3, when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. 
to us. That when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people, listen carefully, so the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Now, I hate to say this, and I hate to use a secular illustration of this, but probably the best replica, probably the best modern-day replica of the Ark of the Covenant is that Indiana Jones film. And if you have a picture of that, you have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. All right. And guess what? Israel was excited. The Philistines hear their excitement. They're afraid. And in verse 7, the Philistines say, God has come into the camp. Woe to us. And they said, well, guys, the only thing we can say to you is to fight like you've never fought before. And the Bible says in verse 10 that the Philistines fought, and Israel was what? The second time defeated. And not only that, but what happened in verse 11? The ark was captured. Now flip over to the next chapter, chapter 6. Now the ark, verse 1, of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. The Philistines decide to send it back home. They try to figure out how to do this without getting themselves into trouble. And they send the cart back home, and guess what? Those oxen pulling the cart know exactly where to go, and they go right into the camp of uh, the men of Beth Shemesh, which is in Israel. And the men of Beth Shemesh get into trouble because they're all over the ark, and they're looking into it, and, and God has to slay thousands of them for it. And because this really sent a message to them that, hey, you know what, this is a pretty serious issue. Verse 21 says, they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath, Jerem. And here's what they said. The Philistines have sent the ark back to us. We want you guys to come down and take the ark and take care of it. And so the Bible says in verse, chapter 7, verse 1, that they brought the ark into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. But look at verse 2. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath, Jerem, a long time, or Jerem, a long time. How long? 20 years. Now, wait a minute. God told the children of Israel back in the time of Exodus, they haven't been out of Egypt very long. They get a pattern to build the tabernacle, which is a tent. And in the tent, in the holy, holy, holiest of holy places in that tent is, the, is this Ark of the Covenant they were to build that represents God with them. Philistines capture it. They keep it for seven months. They send it to Israel. Israel's afraid of it. So they have the house of Abinadab out there in no man's land, out in the, will, out in the, in the, in the woods, keep it for 20 years. Does that make sense? It doesn't make any sense. 
But that's the historical information that you need to know. Now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we pick up the story, only this is 20 years later now, when David becomes the king of Israel, and David captures the city of Jerusalem, and David lives in the city of Jerusalem after he captures the city of Jerusalem. And in verse 11 of chapter 5, guess what? One of his one of his uh, favorite people, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. Now the ark is still sitting down at Abinadab's house. Been there for 20 years. And David says, you know what? We need to bring that up to Jerusalem. And so David got a bunch of men together in chapter 6, and they went down and they got the ark, and the ark of God they put on a new cart in verse 3, and brought it out of the house of who? Abinadab. On the way to Jerusalem, however, there was a guy by the name of Uzzah who put his hand out on the ark to hold it steady, for it looked like it was going to fall off the, off the cart, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. David was afraid. He says, I, 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 don't, I don't want this in my place. And so in verse 9, after he expresses that, David had the ark taken to Obed-Edom where it stayed for a little while. And David then in chapter 7, verses 1 and following, and I want you to keep this in mind now. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, I got this nice house, and there's the ark in a tent that we call the tabernacle. I want to build a house for the ark. And so Nathan says, well, David, if that's what's in your heart to do, go ahead and do that. But the Lord came to Nathan that night, and the Lord said to Nathan, I don't want David building a house for the ark. I'm going to have a place for the ark. I'm going to appoint a place for it, but I want his son to do it instead. And then he says in verse 12 of 2 Samuel, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, says to David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me or my name and I will establish the throne or a house for his kingdom, which actually gives me the outline for part one and part two of what we're doing with Psalm 132. First of all, building a house for God. Second of all, building a house for David. And the house he's talking about certainly isn't that great house that Tyre, king of Tyre had built for David. Now... Go with me real quick 
to 1 Kings chapter 5. I will not read much of this to you. 1 Kings chapter 5. In 1 Kings chapter 5, Solomon is now the king. Solomon proposes to build a house for the Lord. He gets Hiram, who is this, he's the best timber man there is. He's the one who cuts down the trees in Lebanon, called the Cedars of Lebanon. So they get the best lumber, and they bring it to the city of Jerusalem, and Solomon builds the, te the temple, a great house for the Lord. And I just want to bring it to your attention that when Solomon builds the temple, he has a big dedication day. And on dedication day in chapter 8 of 1 Kings, he stands before the people, spreads out his hands toward heaven, and he says, and this will be the last I'll read from this, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of that, but I want you to quickly go back to Psalm 32 for me to give you the punchline. My big question is, now that you've gotten this information, what do you get out of that? Because you don't get all of the information just the highlights of Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, for he vowed that he would not go to bed and have a good night's sleep until he found a place for the Lord to dwell. Now, does it make more sense? That's verses 1 through 5. Does that make more sense? Am I moving too fast for you? Does it make more sense? Got it? Look at verses 6 and 7. Behold, we heard of it, and these are the worshipers. We heard about either David's plan, or we heard about the fact that that's where the ark tabernacle ended up. We found it in the fields of the woods. And now they're saying... Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. You and the ark of your strength, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. If I were to put this historically anywhere in the Old Testament, and you can put it in a couple of places, but if I were to historically put it, I would say this is dedication day when Solomon dedicates the temple. That's what I would say. Because knowing what I know, now if I need to know more and read more in Scripture and come up with a better, uh, more information, maybe I would revise that. But based on what I'm reading here, here are the worshipers in verse 6 saying, we found it in the fields of the woods. And we're reminiscing, they're reminiscing about it and they're talking about their plan. Let us now go to his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. One reason why I say that is because we didn't read everything that Solomon prayed about that day, but Solomon quotes 
verses 8, 9, and 10. Word for word on dedication day. Now, say, well, Gary, where's the spiritual application to all of this? Well, time is up. So let me ask you a question. Do you want me to do you want me to hold off on that and give it to you now, or would you be willing to accept it at the beginning of the message next week? How many say next week will be okay? How many want it now? Y'all want it now. Okay. I'll do it in two or three minutes. Here we go. Here are the worshipers in verses 6 and 7 and 8 saying, you know what? We found the ark. It's been returned. It's been put in its proper place. Let's go into his tabernacle and let us worship at his footstool. What we didn't read when Solomon gave us his prayer was the fact that after he built, because they keep talking about this is where God's going to dwell, this is where God's going to live. And Solomon says in that dedication day prayer, Solomon says, Lord, we are not so stupid to believe that you are going to dwell on the earth in a temple. He says that in verse 27 of 1 Kings chapter 7, 8 rather. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which you have built. We live in a day and age when we like to put God into a box. And if we can keep him in that box, we're okay. But you and I understand God does not live in a box. He is too massive, too big to live and dwell. When I ask the, you know, so the important passage, the important thing that you need to understand as we kind of close this out this morning, it's kind of two things. Number one, you and I need to sing the hymn, How Big Is God? Remember that hymn we got in our hymn books? How big is God? He's bigger than the universe. When you walk out here today and whatever problems you face tomorrow and whatever difficulties and challenges and whatever your life is like this week, you got to remember that God is bigger than this universe. So why all this discussion? And, and I love the way he puts it here. So the temple was merely a footstool. God's throne is in heaven and God is in his temp his feet are resting on the, on the ottoman in, in the temple, so to speak, footstool. Do you like that picture? It's huge. I love to use that at funerals because I get to say then, you know, for God to transport you from earth to heaven is merely, since he is sitting in heaven and his feet are resting on the earth, it's merely as simple as him reaching down and picking you up. But my final thought, and I think I'll be within my time limit here. 
Why is the idea that God is going to dwell in the temple so important to the children of Israel if God is everywhere omnipresent? If God is everywhere and knows everything, if God is everywhere and is omnipotent, can do anything, can work from anywhere in this universe. You don't have to call him up and say, hey, can you get here? And the Lord say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm beyond the farthest star. It'll take me a week to get there. Why is that so big? Final thought. Final thought. When I, was in, when I was in college, we used to go every, I went to a Christian college, liberal arts college in Cape May, New Jersey, and that's 50 miles south of Atlantic City, and every Saturday I was on a gospel team where we would go take gospel tracks, and we'd take the, we'd, we'd go up to Atlantic City, and we'd do the whole length of the boardwalk, we'd start from one end of the boardwalk to the other, and we did it in the winter months, because I found out that the boardwalk in Atlantic City is open all year round. And we would, uh, we would put tracks in the telephone booths, we'd stop people, we'd give them tracks. You know what a track is? A track is a little message of the gospel. But I bring this to your attention because there was one track that I've never forgotten that didn't specifically talk about the gospel initially. It talked about the question, what would it be like if Jesus came to your house? where he's up close and personal. You know, where the children of Israel are saying, Lord, we've got this temple here for you to live in, so you're right here with us. You see everything. You know, we know that God is everywhere, but the point is that, that it's up close and personal for us. We know you're right there, you know, if we can look at the temple and see you there. But the track was all about, what if Jesus came to your house? Would you put away your reading material? Would you change what you watch on TV? Would you watch your language around the dinner table? What would it be like if, <laughs> if Jesus came to your house? Now, all of that is to prove that all of us are sinners, right? All of us are sinners, and we all need the Lord. You see, the neat thing about the gospel is God doesn't describe uh, an impossible situation that he doesn't have a solution for. And the whole point is that Jesus is so personal, up close and personal, that he knows your life inside and out. He knows our lives inside and out, and he is willing to change them. And he starts with forgiving us for all of our sin, right? And I need to say that. I need to say that because the whole implication of the gospel is that the Lord, the Lord is here to make eternal changes for all of us.